Attention, please. You're listening to TalkZone.com, Internet Talk Radio. TalkZone.com. Now, the Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Robbins Show. We bring you another week of interesting medical stories of the day with lots of controversies and medical tidbits. I'm here with my co-host and wife, Susie Robbins. I'm a neurologist, headache specialist, and my wife is a social worker. And many of you have emailed us with questions and concerns and things that you want to bring up on the program Please feel free to email us at DocLarryRobbins, D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com. You can also find the email on my website, HeadacheDrugs.com. That's one long word, HeadacheDrugs.com. It's a non-commercial site. We just have thousands of pages of information, and it's not just on headache drugs. We have a lot of psychological information and information on chronic pain and related subjects. We have an interesting show today, and we'll start out with a new article on women's midlife weight is a key to future diabetes risk. And the gist of it is, it it turns out that heading into midlife, if women are overweight by their early 40s, they have a greatly increased chance of getting diabetes, which leads to all kinds of complications. And losing weight in midlife may or may not help all that much, much. So the key is to try to keep weight off uh, in your 20s and 30s, which is uh, a tough trick to do. We've talked quite a bit on the show about keys to weight loss, how to lose weight, uh, but if it was easy, all of us would do it. Uh, it's not. But starting around age 20 or 25, researchers have shown that only tiny changes in physical activity and calorie intake are needed for the majority of people to keep from becoming overweight or obese. So we, we want people to educate themselves, to learn, to read. You know, in my practice, it seems as if people underestimate their calories by about half. If they think that they're eating 1,200 calories a day, it's closer to 2,000 or 2,400 when we get around to adding it up. So learning, even as young people, even talking to your teenagers about calories, we don't want young people to become anorexic, particularly women, and overemphasize thinness. But what we do want to do is overemphasize health. You know, I think as we all get older and we start learning some tricks, what we each personally have to do to uh, maintain our weight, looking at younger people now, if they could pick up on some of those tips earlier, it's not such a drastic change in having to then make these changes when they're older, if they could just slowly incorporate some of them into their life now. And again, particularly with teenagers, we don't want to go crazy with thinness and turn everybody into an anorexic. That's uh, uh, that's happened, and uh, it turns out with teenage girls particularly, we don't want to overemphasize things. And certainly we don't want teenage girls to be looking at their mothers who are constantly dieting and and withholding food from themselves uh, for the teenage girls to get the idea that that's what they're supposed to do, too. So I think, you know, as we've talked about in the past on this show, you know, eating well and exercising, 
you know, it's a, it's a whole package. It's not just one thing, and we certainly want our kids to learn that. And we've talked on this show before about the risks for anorexia, and one of them is moms who are uh, ridiculously overly concerned with weight and with dieting. Now, speaking of teens, our next story is interesting. The title is Teens with More Pocket Money May Drink More. A study from a few days ago out of the U.K. indicated that particularly 15- and 16-year-olds who have more money in their pocket tend to binge drink or drink more. And they looked at other things as far as drinking in the study. Interestingly enough, teens who drank alcohol with their parents in a family setting, like having wine with dinner, were less likely to binge or drink in other particularly risky ways. And we've talked about this before in France, in certain European countries, more than in the United States. It's natural uh, to grow up with people drinking some wine with dinner in mild or moderate amounts and they're less likely to become bingers or heavy drinkers. And you fast forward to the United States, where we have uh, an all or nothing. We have parents telling kids, don't drink, and pretending that they're not going to drink. And then the kids get to senior year of high school or to college and are bingers. So maybe we're not doing it quite right in the United States. Turns out, apparently, if they learn to drink from their parents uh, in mild amounts, uh, they're better off, according to the researchers in the U.K. And, again, the, the teens who had more money in their pocket were more likely to drink alcohol. I think that probably goes for other drugs as well, if they can afford the cocaine. Uh, if they can't afford it, maybe they won't get it. Now, my co-host Susie Robbins uh, is a social worker, and she's worked before with teens who've had drug and alcohol problems. What do you think about uh, this study? Well, I think from what... You've talked about it. It does seem to make sense. However, I think our, the climate in our country, and certainly I'm speaking of our community where you and I live right now, um, we have had in our area this past year a huge clampdown on parents who have been providing alcohol for their kids. About six months ago, there was um, a senior in the high school in our local community high school who died uh, along with a recent graduate of uh, the driver had been drinking and they plowed into a tree. And um, the community was up in arms. Apparently there had been some alcohol served at, at a young person's house that night. So now our community is being very watchful of any parents who have any culpability in providing alcohol for their, for their children or other children in the area. So I understand this article, and it certainly does make sense. Um, but then we look at the laws and the regulations we have here, and it, it seems to um, add to the problems of what can happen with kids who are out there drinking and driving. Yeah, and to expand on uh, our local community, I think that a lot of communities in the United States are like this. Uh, we've reacted to one too many funerals uh, of high school kids, who had uh, accidental uh, uh, died in accidents? Although studies have indicated that it's not alcohol that causes nine out of ten accidents, it's speeding, and it's mostly the 16-year-olds. As they get to 17, their accidents go down in half, and 18 goes down another half. So maybe we should raise the driving age to 18. But the problem is not parents sensibly drinking a little wine with dinner and showing their kids that they can. It's 
giving them alcohol, shoving them in the basement, uh, leaving them alone unsupervised, and letting the chips fall where they may, or letting the party happen where all of a sudden there's 40 kids over at the house and it's out of control and there's a lot of alcohol. Then the 16-year-old leaves. Uh, they're drunk. They they speed. They crash into a tree, and uh, it's horrific. So I think that uh, a lot of communities react against drunk driving, uh, which is um, very good, but uh, maybe overreact against teaching kids responsible drinking, uh, which they've done for several hundred years in certain European countries. Now, speaking of parents, our next story is about soccer moms, and it really is about kids being overly competitive in, in too many sports, and we've seen this with our kids and our community's kids, where kids are in a sport 10 or 11 or 12 months a year, five, six, seven days a week. They're on three or four teams. And a recent study showed that they're much more likely to be injured and become burned out. So are we doing the kids any good? Interestingly enough, in this study, they mentioned that very few kids make the Olympics or make the pros. And I've done some coaching uh, and... Uh, played competitive sports, and some of the parents really at age 9 and 10 and 11, they're sure that their uh, little tyke is going to make the Olympics. They want to get the top trainers and train seven days a week and be in camps and everything. And by age 16 or 17, they've lost that, and the kids that are left in the sport are just doing it for the fun, which is what they should be doing at age 9, 10, and 11. And we've all seen plenty of kids who burn out, who hate their sport, who after high school, don't play it for 5 or 10 or 20 years, and then what's the point? Now, Susie, we've had uh, kids in sports and seen a lot of uh, crazed parents in sports. What do you think about this? Well, I think anybody who's raised kids in, in this day and age and where their kids get onto some kind of club team, whether it's soccer or travel baseball, can probably attest to that most of the parents out there are great and you know are happy to encourage their kids in the teams. Uh, and, and typically there's usually a few parents that, you know, just go overboard, you know, upset with the refs, upset with the umps. Um, for me, a few years ago, it was when our daughter was starting high school and she was playing club soccer, which meant she was playing different teams throughout the area. And we actually, the parents actually had to go to a, um, half day course on learning the etiquette of how to behave at the games. It was led by a um, a soccer uh, ref who, you know, was explaining to all of us what the rules were, how parents were allowed to behave during it, and it really drove home how how things have changed, how pe- how some parents have just uh, overstated uh, the boundaries and how to behave. Yeah, I think that those programs help. Uh, to a great extent. After they instituted this in the local soccer program, and I was coaching some soccer, uh, I found parents' behavior much better. There was really zero tolerance. They couldn't go out and scream at the ref. They'd get kicked out. And the same with uh, the coach's behavior. As far as the over-programming, you know, we see, particularly in certain sports, uh, hockey, baseball in some areas, uh, where kids are playing at 10, 12 months a year, they're in three teams, and they may have a lot of enthusiasm, but that set, tends to wane as they get into high school, and some of the kids 
uh, totally burned out. Some are injured with overuse injuries. I know I played a lot of sports as a kid, and at some point my elbow virtually wouldn't work, and I couldn't lift anything for 20 years, and it was because of pitching and hockey and tennis. In those days, uh, back in the dinosaur days, this is 1950s and 60s, uh, they didn't uh, have any restriction on how many innings. They didn't have the instruction that we have now, so our techniques were poor. So we probably got, and then we weren't taken care of as well by sports injury doctors. I remember when I had a serious elbow injury, they just put it in a sling, which was the worst thing for it. So things have come along quite a bit better. But I do remember a lot of parents were terrible back then. It's the hyper-competitive parents who are living out their fantasies through their kids. Some of them didn't do well in sports in high school and are um, really uh, living through their kids. And I'm not sure that parents have gotten a lot better as far as that, but at least uh, we've recognized this whole problem. Susie? You know, if you if you follow your child who, say, picks a sport such as soccer and they start out as a, as a seven- or eight-year-old and they move up the ranks through our local community soccer is called AYSO. Actually, I think AYSO might be around the country. You know, and then they maybe get into a travel club and they do it in high school. And throughout the years, you tend to be with the same families, the same parents, and it's been interesting for us with our daughter who just graduated from high school. She went through the whole, you know, 10, 12 years of it. Um, let's see, actually, yeah, about 12 years. And, you know, there's such an intensity with all of us, you know, with our seeing our kids move up, um, you know, learn how to, um, you know, play with older kids and, and go to camps in the summer. And by the time they get to junior, senior year in high school, it's kind of like, wow, I guess this is it. We're coming to an end here. Because as you said, Larry, you know, obviously most kids aren't going to play pros, but even college sports, most kids aren't going to be playing their sport of choice in college. Right. Uh, you know, I like to get them into a sport, too, that they can play for a long time. I know my, my son played a little bit of hockey earlier. I play hockey. Uh, hockey is one of those sports you can play. I play in a league where some of the guys are 70 years old and women. And, uh, he, my son took it up older and he's more, he has more enthusiasm for it than most of the kids who played throughout. I think some kids who take up the sport in their late teens or twenties will sustain it and continue to play. They're not burned out with it. But it's bittersweet seeing kids grow up and out of the sport. Uh, remembering all the times that you brought uh, oranges for halftime and all those practices. Uh, it is bittersweet. It's part of life in the stages seeing your kids uh, grow out of competitive sports. You know, also, too, um, thinking about kids who choose sometimes to just really work on one sport uh, with our son Dan he played uh, soccer all through grade school, high school, truly enjoyed it, and then started playing intramural in college and sustained an injury that ended up, um, he ended up tearing his uh, anterior cruciate ligament, that ACL in his knee. And to this day, I really think it was from all the years of soccer and uh, the stretching that it was probably just ready to go. And... Um, really bittersweet because he enjoyed the sport for so many years and most of his college years have been have been plagued with uh 
getting his knee back in shape so that he can hopefully just play pickup basketball with his buddies. Um, you know, that those years can really wreak havoc on the body, too. You know, you mentioned the ACL, the anterior cruciate ligament, and we've seen a plethora, a deluge. It's an epidemic of ACL injuries, particularly among young women. Uh, some sports, soccer, basketball, are very tough on the knees and on their ACL. Some high school basketball teams, uh, the girls' teams, Three or four of the five starters have had ACL injuries, which is a devastating, huge injury. Enormous surgery, rehab, it's never the same. So there is research going on why uh, all the ACL injuries, what we can do about it. I saw one interesting article that women tend, young women tend to run more up and down, straight up and down, which puts more stress on the ACL joint uh, or ligament. And boys tend to run more bent over at the waist. And if that's true, and if that does lead to injuries, maybe we could teach young women to run a little bit more bent over, although it's tough to change your natural style of running. But we need other research. Uh, maybe young women should, uh, if it's possible, or young men also, to build up the muscles around their knee. But uh, the ACLs are, it, it is a, an enormous problem. Now, as uh, listeners to our program have seen, we generally it's been a bad year for vitamins and herbs. I'm down on vitamins and herbs that have not held up in studies, but I do promote vitamins and herbs, the few of them that have held up in a lot of studies, one of which, and you're probably sick of me talking about vitamin D, is vitamin D. Uh, a number of new studies now show that vitamin D is good for this, good for that, and every study really has been holding up very well. You need the sun to get vitamin D. Very few of us are out in the hot sun. In the northern half of the country, it's virtually impossible. So when we check levels around Chicago, anyways, at that latitude of vitamin D, about 95% of people are very low. So this new study showed that uh, taking vitamin D in women, particularly over the age of 55, we have much less risk of cancer. And this is a fairly large study, and there's a number of studies coming out about vitamin D and cancer. Now, the body makes uh, vitamin D after being exposed to sunlight, but unfortunately not many foods are very rich in D. Uh, it is found in fatty fishes uh, and salmon, and you could take cod liver oil. Milk is fortified with it, but it's very difficult to get enough, and we do need this one type of D called D3, which your multivitamin, your average multivitamin, often just has D2. Uh, so taking a, I recommend taking a D supplement. And uh, we've increased the units from six or 800 units a day. There are people now talking that everybody should be on 14 or 1500 units of D. You don't want to take too much D. If you take more than 3,000 a day, it accumulates in the liver. But the bottom line is D and calcium are good. Susie? Uh, and what about, you know, I, I think it might be good to clarify for all of us, um, vitamin D, particularly with young people and being able to combat uh, multiple sclerosis. Is there any link with that? You know, it's very interesting, yes. Um, they did a, a 2 million person study. Now, that's the kind of study I can get my teeth into. 2 million people. They looked at D levels in the Army and followed people for many years. And the higher the D level, the lower incidence of multiple sclerosis. 
which as an aside is very interesting because uh, I'm a neurologist. I was looking at multiple sclerosis since the 70s. There were people looking for reasons for multiple sclerosis for their whole career starting around 1930. Uh, there was one fellow I talked to for 45 years that looked for why people get MS. And we always knew that MS or multiple sclerosis gets worse as we get away from the equator up north uh, towards the the northern climbs. But nobody really thought about light levels and vitamin D and sun exposure. And it turns out that the higher the vitamin D, the less chance of multiple sclerosis. So uh, we have three kids between us, and lately I gave them all vitamin D and said, here, take this, and gave them some reasons. Now, whether they'll take it or not, uh, kids tend to think that nothing bad is ever going to happen to them and that they'll live forever anyways. It's the nature of being young. But uh, there is some thought that young people, as well as old, should take vitamin D. Susie, you take, uh, do you take uh, calcium and vitamin D? Well, I certainly take calcium with the vitamin D, the one tablet. But since you and I have been talking about it, I've actually also increased to taking uh, a separate additional vitamin D supplement. I think mine actually are 400 milligrams uh, of D, plus I'm getting it in my calcium, which also leads me to the question that if I'm thinking this, I'm hoping a lot of people out there are also thinking it. With all the recent controversy about multivitamins, should I, should the rest of us all be taking a multivitamin? Well, that's a great question. Uh, with half the country taking multivitamins, should we? Is there any evidence? And we're going to take a very brief break. Uh, we'll talk about multivitamins afterwards. We'll talk about antidepressants in the elderly. We'll talk about parents' pain affecting kids' pain and a whole lot more. So stay with us, folks. Now more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host, Larry Robbins, MD, on TalkZone.com. We're back. This is the Dr. Robin Show. We bring you every week medical conundrums, stories, hot topics of the day. I'm here with my co-host Susie Robbins. Please feel free to email us at DocLarryRobbins, D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com. That's DocLarryRobbins. With any questions or things that you want us to address on the show, we get lots of nice emails and it, it spurs what we'll talk about with the next show. Or you could visit my website, which is a non-commercial educational website with thousands of pages of info. The name is HeadacheDrugs.com. That's one long word, HeadacheDrugs.com. And we have our email on there. Now, before the break, we were talking about vitamin D, and then the subject of multivitamins came up. And there's never been great evidence, in my mind, that people should be on multivitamins. Recently, ConsumerLabs.com... Uh, which is a very good site, and others have done research like this, uh, looked at 20 different types, I believe, of uh, multivitamins and found problems with uh, a number of them. Only a few multivitamins, such as Centrum, held up to scrutiny. Some of the multivitamins had too much lead. Some didn't have exactly what they said in them. And the other issue is side effects and do they do any good. There was a study that we mentioned on this program uh, a couple months ago, where men with uh, prostate cancer, once they got prostate cancer, the multivitamins may have actually fed it. The men who are on multivitamins got more severe prostate cancer, 
than men not on multivitamins. And that go, may go for a couple other cancers as well. So the issue is, should we not be on multivitamins? That's up in the air. And uh, which ones? Uh, the ones that did hold up uh, were Centrum and Women's One a Day. Now, on another topic, a depressing topic, depression in the elderly is fairly common, and it tends to be undertreated. Depression in general tends to be undertreated. And there was recently a study that if the elderly are on, if an older person is depressed and they're on an antidepressant and they're not doing well with it, they're a little better with it, um, but not really in remission or they're still depressed, adding a second antidepressant may improve their recovery. Now, we always do want to minimize medicine. Older people tend to be on this medicine and that medicine anyway, so we don't want to just add medicines. But it's a matter of quality of life, and it's also a matter of physical health. People who are depressed, their immune systems may be compromised. They may get, uh, they probably do get more heart problems, etc. So we don't do want to treat depression uh, very seriously for medical serious reasons, but also for uh, quality of life. It's just a terrible feeling to be depressed. It takes all the joy of life out of there. Susie. Well, certainly I, I understand what you're saying uh, in terms of the elderly becoming more depressed. I'm wondering how much of that is just because of their uh, a situational reasons, such as losing a spouse, seeing their friends pass away, maybe having less day-to-day contact with their children, their grandchildren have grown up, they don't see them as often, just a loss of relationships in general. That, I would imagine, has to play a huge part in this. Uh, yeah, those are all great subjects and have been the uh, subject of uh, many, many articles, debates, symposiums, and books. And certainly as people get into their 80s and 90s, uh, a lot of their friends have died. Uh, their kids may be around the country. Our mobile society just does not seem to work. We're less connected. People who uh, have moved to the snowbirds who moved or moved permanently to Arizona, Florida, et cetera, warmer climes, become disconnected from kids and grandkids, and it just doesn't work. They, they feel more isolated, uh, more depressed. I think sometimes a lot of people are better off, unfortunately, saying it, staying in their hometown, whether it's a northern climate or not, whether they like the cold weather or not, maybe getting away if they can for a couple months or a month or so, but staying connected to old friends, to family, to grandkids, because what happens is they go down, I've noticed, and it becomes la-la land, their mentality. They they don't really care as much, it seems, about grandkids. They're not at the, the school plays and at the functions, and they lose touch. And all of a sudden, and then they complain that nobody calls them and nobody, nobody visits them. Health problems certainly play a major role in depression, and the healthier somebody is, they have less tendency towards depression, and that's a big factor. The issue is outside of medicine, too. How about psychotherapy for depression in the elderly? Susie, what do you think about therapy for uh, older folks who are depressed? Well, I think a combination of psychotherapy and um, antidepressants would be most helpful for anybody, including the elderly. Uh, I'm almost. I'm also wondering how about uh, group therapy with elderly? Maybe being able to get into a group with people suffering similar losses, where they 
you know, could all get together and, you know, have a, um, have somebody lead these groups? That's a great point. I love groups. I think groups are, um, fun and, uh, very beneficial if it's run by a good facilitator, good therapist. You know, speaking of depression, uh, I, a recent study also came out showing that uh, when all the flap about antidepressants and suicide risk, which turned out to be not as much of a risk as was mentioned, um, it first happened in England where they took for adolescents and kids all the antidepressants basically off the market uh, or unapproved except for Prozac for some reason. And then the United States and other countries got into the act and uh, put black box warnings on the drugs that uh, with increased suicide risk, which really is very minimal risk in that age range. It was interesting. There's now studies looking at what happened to treating depression during that time after they put the warnings. And what what has happened is we've seen the suicide risk go up, suicides go up uh, because people are less treated for their depression. And they thought, well, the idea is, okay, we'll use less antidepressants and get more kids and uh, and adults into therapy and other treatments and therapists, groups, but that hasn't happened. What happened was pediatricians particularly were just much less likely to prescribe the drugs, and the kids and adolescents went untreated for depression. We saw no increase in the studies in non-drug treatments for depression, no increase in therapy. Um, and a lot of that is money and insurance and time and all that. You know, I think it's interesting, the law of unintended consequences. So say you have a study showing that suicide risk is increased with antidepressants in adolescents, which it probably really isn't, but uh, or maybe a little in the first two weeks, suicidal thinking, but not suicide. So then you make it much harder for pediatricians to prescribe, and you put all these rules and regulations and legal risk, uh, gosh forbid, it, what if something happens, so they don't want to prescribe. What happens is then kids get undertreated, much less treated for depression. More depression gets more depression. It's like kindling, logs on a fire. Uh, if we don't treat depression, people are more likely in one, three, and five years to be depressed and what happens is then uh, we've uh, limited the medicines, but we've increased depression and decreased quality of life. So we have to really think before we institute national policies based on one or two case reports, say, of suicide in an adolescent. Now, our next study is interesting. It's about parents' pain affecting child's migraine severity. And this was presented at this week's American Headache Society meetings in Chicago, which I happen to be at, and there were a number of interesting articles. But the gist of this study was that the degree of disability and pain suffered by adolescents with headaches may have a lot to do with how their parents experience pain. And I think that I agree with this, having seen adolescents with headaches for 20 years. The quote is, their tolerance level to the pain and their degree of functioning was lower, their disability was higher with the pain when parents also have a number of pain-related conditions. How parents perceive pain and talk about pain translates into how the kids perceive and talk about pain. And we've seen that with uh, parents with severe headaches. Often their kids 
have severe headaches, they may not seem to our eyes as bad as uh, the kid is making them out to be. Parents who don't function as well or don't function with a pain, their kids are more likely to be out of school and not functioning. Now also, if we look at how parents perceive their kids, if parents don't have pain conditions and are not disabled by chronic pain, they don't see their kids as disabled by headaches, even when the kids are having fairly severe headaches. They say, well, my kid is okay. You know, he has headaches, but uh, he still goes to school, and he's okay, we'll just give him something. The parents who have chronic pain or who are disabled by the headaches view their kids as very disabled and tend to say, my kid can't go to school, uh, he's missing, can we do homebound, etc., etc., this brings to point uh, the history. When we see somebody, the history is crucial in uh, evaluating. And when we see a kid with chronic pain or with headaches, I think the history in the parents of chronic pain is very important because it influences how the whole family views things. If we look at a family dynamics way of looking at chronic pain, it's very interesting that uh, parents' perceptions of pain translate down into kids. And this is a big issue. We see a lot of kids who are missing days, weeks, months, or years of school due to chronic low back pain, chronic headaches. They're on homebound. And usually with medicines and therapy and a comprehensive approach, we can get them back to school. Sometimes we have to get them um, out of high school and into college away from home till they get better, actually. In medical terms, we call that a parentectomy, which is removing the parents from the situation sometimes actually does help. Susie? Isn't that interesting, you know, how the parents are, well, to use a psychological term, in a sense, projecting onto their kids now how, what they're what, feeling? What is, uh, in simple English terms, uh, so projection is a great term, and it's a social work, psychological term. Uh, can you explain that simply? Well, I guess I would think of it in terms of within in with this particular situation that the parents, let's say the parents are feel the mother is feeling pain from her own migraines, and her son Johnny says that he's starting to get headaches. Well, she's thinking about how much her headaches hurt, so she's going to project or, in a sense, assume that Johnny's headaches really hurt just as much as her. So she's then saying, oh, my God, your headaches must be horrible. I understand because that's how they feel to me. So what you're saying is that maybe the mom is projecting her own migraine pain or her experience onto her kid. Exactly. And how would that affect then the kid's reaction with a mom who might be... uh, Maybe the kid is, for instance, overhearing the mom call the doctor or the teacher saying, uh, my child's experienced horrible, severe pain. You've got to do something. Does that affect, do you think, how the uh, child feels? Well, I'm sure it would, but I, I also think that it could probably be much more subtle than that. And most likely that could be actually how it typically happens is that there's a subtle interaction between the mother or the parent and the child and that the child sees, has seen over the years mother's pain and mother is 
told the child about her pain, and then if he or she starts, the, the child starts getting the headaches, there's a subtle dance with, oh, you know, Johnny, your, your pain must be horrible, and they start thinking, yeah, I guess it's really bad. Now, in dealing with adolescents with severe pain uh, for many years, uh, I've come to use some tricks. Um, typically what happens is I'll be talking to the mom and the and the 15-year-old or 14-year-old or the dad and the 14-year-old, and they'll say that um, Sally... Now, you tend to use Johnny in your examples. I always use Sally, and the kids always laugh at me, you know, Sally, Sally... I, to all the Sallys in the world, I'm sorry and I apologize. But my typical case history when I teach medical residents, et cetera, is uh, Sally. But I'll be talking to the mom and the 15-year-old named Sally. There's not a lot of Sallys running around now. It's not like Heather, et cetera. And uh, the kid will be out of school for five or six days. The mom said she's had horrible, horrible headaches and it's terrible and... Uh, Nothing's working, of course, and usually there's some stress going on at school uh, with uh, usually some peer or something going on. And when I talk to Sally herself, uh, I can distract her easily, and she's laughing, and we can talk about a lot of other things. So how bad can the headache be? But then when they get back with a the mom, they put on the face, and uh, it's severe. So what we've learned over the years is certain behavioral techniques, how to handle Kids, one of my favorites is, uh, this works nine times out of ten. I'll say, uh, well, if the headache's not better, if you can't go to school, we'll have to give you uh, a shot intravenously with a big needle. And then we'll repeat that in two or three hours. And that'll stop the headaches, but we'll have to do a couple of intravenous shots. Almost always it stops the headache and the kid goes back to school. Now, that's not to say that kids' headaches are psychological, but sometimes with long, severe ones where nothing is working, uh, there are psychological factors that come into play. Don't go away. The show continues after this time out. You've discovered TalkZone.com, the best in Internet talk radio. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Now, on another topic, one of the more severe cancers is ovarian cancer. It does not have uh, a terrific outlook, and part of the problem is catching it early. If we catch it really early, you can cure ovarian cancer. And they're working on new blood tests. It was one that was uh, in development last year at truly finding early ovarian cancer, and hopefully that will come along. But now there's a new study on doing a a particular type of ultrasound where they can catch ovarian cancer early. And I could foresee, if this works out, that the authorities will recommend ultrasound to catch early ovarian cancer, much like we do mammograms to catch early breast cancer. In the study, the women doing the ultrasounds, and it's an ultrasound of uh, uh, through the va- uh, vagina and of the ovaries, uh, the women were at least 50 years old with uh, no cancer-related symptoms, or uh, they did do it in younger women who had a family history of ovarian cancer. They found that this ultrasound 
looking for ovarian cancer was highly sensitive and specific in detecting ovarian cancer. There were some false negative results. It doesn't catch every early cancer. But maybe between the ultrasound and a newer blood test catching early ovarian cancer, we can make some inroads because by the time ovarian cancer rears its ugly head and you have symptoms, it's often too late. Now, I don't know how expensive uh, the transvaginal ultrasound for ovarian cancer will be, but I don't imagine that it's going to be hugely expensive. And the cost uh, emotionally and financially of ovarian cancer is very large. Now, Susie, I know that we've talked somewhat about ovarian cancer, and uh, you also volunteer as a social worker in a cancer unit. Would you consider doing the ultrasound? What do you think about this? Sure, absolutely. I, you know, anything that we can screen to know if um, there's something there and, and catch it early is great. And I think it's a good point bringing up the subject of ovarian cancer in general, uh, you know, so much of our energies and our worries and concerns seem to be around for women breast cancer. Um, but certainly ovarian cancer is out there and, and I know that they don't have the success rates that breast cancer has been having. Uh, so it seems very, very important for all of us to find out about it. We need early intervention. The next study is about home blood pressure monitoring, which has been Uh, deemed very useful by the researchers. Blood pressure is a key risk factor along with diabetes and uh, high cholesterol, etc. And we need to control blood pressure to prevent the devastating effects, particularly heart disease, but also stroke. And many people only check their blood pressure once a year in a doctor's office or once every eight months at the health club or something like that, or never check it. And for years, I've told people with any uh, high blood pressure or moderate blood pressure, and the authorities who oversee blood pressure have lowered where we want blood pressure to be. They used to say 140 over 90 is borderline. Now we really want it definitely less than 130 over 85 and actually low 120s over 80. The lower the better, except you you don't want it too low. And as people get older, into their 70s and late 70s and early 80s, we really don't want it too low. That can cause problems also. But high blood pressure is a major problem. The way we define it, uh, about half the people as they get into their 60s, late 50s and 60s, have high blood pressure. And how best to monitor it? For a long time, I've recommended that people get an arm cuff a digital arm cuff. Uh, they usually cost 70 to $100. There's various types. They wrap it around their arm and press the button, and it, it inflates it and reads it out, and then you can write down the recordings. And you don't have to go crazy doing it three times a day for years. Once a day or a few times a week even is enough. It's better than once every six months in a doctor's office. And in a doctor's office... Blood pressure tends sometimes to be a little bit high. Some people have the white coat syndrome where blood pressure is really high in a doctor's office or it's just moderately elevated and uh, some people uh, end up a little bit overtreated because their blood pressure may normally run 120 over 80 and it's 140 over 90 in a doctor's office. So measuring it at home makes sense and I think is crucial once you get on medicine to monitor 
what we're doing with the medicines, just not enough every few months in a doctor's office. What we're interested in is the average of your blood pressure readings. Some people do become compulsive, check it three times a day, and uh, don't be too concerned with one higher reading or one lower reading. It's really the average. The other issue is when should people take it. I've heard various times uh, our blood pressure tends to be a little bit higher early in the morning, so you could do it early in the morning. But some experts recommend doing it early in the morning and then late at night and having a set of them, say three of each. But I think that um, the key is getting a good blood pressure cuff that's an electronic digital cuff, not a wrist cuff and not a thumb cuff, but an arm cuff. One of the most important things that people can do is monitor and be aware of their blood pressure. And like everything, it does run in families. So if mom or dad or both had high blood pressure, uh, you probably will too. Now, in another topic, there was an interesting study out of Finland at Oulu University. Now, I have no idea how to pronounce it. O-U-L-U University that looked at teen male smokers uh, they looked at uh, female smokers also, but they concluded that teen male smokers were at a high risk for future suicide. If boys are regular smokers by age 14, they were four times as likely as their peers who haven't picked up the habit to kill themselves before they were 34 years old. Now, this is a large study with thousands of teenagers, and interestingly enough, no link between smoking at a young age and suicide risk was seen among females. But the girls who were smokers did have more attempted suicides than girls who were not smokers. The study goes on to say that smoking is known to be a risk factor for development of depression and that the smoking-depression link does not explain the gender difference identified in the current studies. Men in this study, young men, were more likely to commit suicide than the women. They speculate that smoking may lower serotonin levels, and that's tied into depression. But I'm also wondering, uh, people, young people who tend to become regular smokers may have a biochemical change in their brain more likely than people who don't smoke uh, they're self-medicating that change of the brain, and so they may be more likely to have depression or commit suicide anyways that doesn't have much to do with actual smoking itself. In other words, we're always looking at cause and effect. We can see an association. Here we have smoking and suicide, but does one cause the other? Does the smoking actually cause the suicide? And that happens, I think, in many, many studies in many areas. Susie, what do you think? You know, I, I'm thinking about from the human angle, chances are that most of these 14-year-olds who are smoking are probably living in homes where there already is smoking by one or two parents. And, you know, so from a sociological standpoint, are they picking up what is already going on with the group within that home? And is there also a genetic piece to all of this that if the parents also have this um, genetic makeup, and they are smoking, then that's also being passed down to the sun. Absolutely. Now, luckily, these days, less kids do smoke. You remember in the old days, a lot of kids, a lot of my friends, uh, smoked. Everybody smoked in the house. I know my parents were chain smokers, and uh, 
I didn't happen to smoke cigarettes, but if I did, they probably would have let me write, you know, uh, from age 13 or 14 on. Susie? Absolutely. My parents were smokers, too, and I was a smoker for years. Thank God I stopped years ago, but... Um you know, it was wide open in our house for some of the kids in our family were smoking in the house. How did you quit smoking? You know, I quit. I'll be the first to say I was afraid that I couldn't do it on my own. I was actually well into my adulthood when I finally quit smoking. I went through a smoking cessation program at a hospital. It was hands down one of the best things I've ever done in my life. It was a small group led by, actually it was a woman from the American Red Cross, and uh, we went through the program. It was, I think, six nights. We met for six weeks, and we slowly cut back. There were no scare tactics. You know, we talked about triggers. We talked about ways that would help us live without smoking. And it was such a freeing feeling when I quit through that program. I really had a monkey off my back. You know, I think those programs work very well. The uh, nicotine products that you can take over-the-counter work well, and the new medicine, Shantix, uh, which is C-H-A-N-T-I-X, is really the first one that I've been excited about as far as really helping smoking. It's, it's actually a nicotine agonist. The first in its class works like nicotine, uh, but uh, I don't believe it's addicting. You're supposed to use it for just one or two months, but I've seen more people quit shant- with Shantix than a- any other previous medicine for stopping smoking. Well, that wraps up this week's program. Each week we bring you medical stories and issues and conundrums. Please feel free to email us at DocLarryRobbins or visit HeadacheDrugs.com. What we do is uh, take each email seriously and try to answer it and also answer on the air and address those issues. Our email segments are very popular. A few weeks back we had an all-email program and we're going to have another one coming up. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine, right here on The Dr. Robbins Show, on TalkZone.com.